everyone. It's it's good to be together today, and hello to everybody who is online as well. Many of you know me, but not everybody. So as Dale said, my name is Sarah, and my family's been part of Calvary since we arrived in Canada from the UK 16 years ago. I've been married to Graham for 29 years. It's a big year next year. And we have three wonderful adult children, five if you include their partners. A few years ago, one of my professors at the seminary I was attending asked the class what we thought God might be calling us to do next. My response was that I was pretty sure that God wanted me to work for a particular mental health organization, and that the role would become available when I was ready to take it on. For almost two years now, I've been doing that role, and I am so glad that I get to use my family's challenges with mental health to come alongside others and offer them support. But here's the thing. The process to get me to the place where I can support others has required me to work through some of the things that we're going to talk about today. And God is still healing and growing me, thank goodness. I'm a work in progress, and dare I say it, so are you. So, here we go. We're in the second week of a series on reconciliation. Last week, Dave told us that God's plan for the world is a fourfold reconciliation story with God, with ourselves, with others, and with creation. Dave focused on what it means to have peace with God. This week, we're taking a deeper dive into reconciliation with ourselves. What does it mean to be at peace with ourselves? Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. And yet, many of us feel broken and ill at ease within ourselves. Perhaps this is you today. Perhaps you just want more peace. After all, who doesn't? It's not surprising that peace can feel elusive. We're constantly bombarded by messages that we can be more, have more, do more. We're not just enough as we are. And as a result of the inner turmoil that these messages can create, the self-help market seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Many of us turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms to deal with our lack of peace with ourselves, overworking, overexercising, eating too much or too little, misusing substances and sex, mindless TV, Shopping, obsessing over Instagram likes and Facebook comments, trying to control our environment, others, and ourselves to feel more at peace in ourselves. 
perhaps we don't even understand what this peace that Jesus talks about really is. Dave talked a little bit about the Bible's definition of peace last week, but I want to remind us because it's really important. The Hebrew word that we translate as shalom means completeness or wholeness, and it points to the presence of God. And shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. The peace of God is different from the peace of the world. It is more than just the absence of conflict. It is taking action to restore a broken situation. It's more than a state of inner tranquility. It's a state of wholeness and completeness. Shalom is God's intent for the whole of creation. It is more than, sorry, it is the idea of flourishing, of being fully alive and completely whole. It is what Jesus means when he said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Right at the outset, I want to acknowledge that talk of flourishing, wholeness, and inner peace might feel really alien or painful to you today. Perhaps you're grieving or dealing with trauma or struggling with a mental health challenge. Perhaps your cry is that of the psalmist who said, darkness is my only companion. This was the title of a wonderful book that I read last summer. It was by a pastor with bipolar disorder who knows all too well the agony of depression that the psalmist expresses. Darkness is my only companion. I'd like to share with you the hope that this pastor clung to in her darkest days. She writes, suffering is not eliminated by the resurrection. It is transformed by it. The resurrection gives us hope for the future. Hope is not optimism. It is an objective knowledge of who God is and how he sees us. One of the most important things we can hang on to as we follow Jesus is hope. Many things in this world are not okay. Hope dares to admit that. Walter Brueggemann writes in the prophetic imagination that real hope only comes after despair. He writes, only if we have tasted despair, only if we have known the deep sadness of unfulfilled dreams and promises, only if we dare look reality in the face and name it for what it is, can we begin to imagine a better way. Revelation 21 reminds all of us that there will come a day when the whole of creation will be restored to God's original shalom, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Jesus is making everything new, and that includes you and me.
At the heart of reconciling with ourselves seems to be the question of identity. I think peace is impossible without a stable sense of self and a positive sense of worth, of significance. Jesus had a profoundly secure sense of identity. His identity, his sense of self and worth, didn't come from what he did, what he had, or what he looked like. It came from understanding how God saw him. At Jesus' baptism, God said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This happened before Jesus began his public ministry. He is affirmed as God's beloved Son. His identity is received, not achieved. He doesn't earn it. And it's the same for us. How God sees us has nothing to do with our performance, following rules, or competing. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul reminds us of what we're told about humanity right at the beginning of creation. You are God's masterpiece. You are wonderful. You are uniquely crafted by God, made in his image. Paul then goes on to say, God has created us anew in Christ Jesus, that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The starting point for reconciling with ourselves is understanding, really owning, that we are God's amazing masterpiece, someone he delights in, and allowing that to transform our sense of identity and purpose. When we derive our sense of worth or significance from our achievements, this can lead to the drive to, to perform better and achieve more. When things don't go well, and boy do I know this, when things don't go well, we can feel a failure, insignificant, and rejected. I love the line in the Christmas song, O Holy Night, that says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he, Jesus, appeared and the soul felt its worth. Christ's incarnation tells us that we matter. We will never discover our true worth through the things that we do or in the eyes of others even those who love us the most. When we fix our eyes on Jesus and we meet his gaze, then we discover our true identity and our significance. So Jesus' life and teaching tell us that God accepts us just as we are. He cannot love us any more and he cannot love us any less. So why do we sometimes struggle to accept this for ourselves? It could be that we're not yet reconciled with God. And if you're just checking out the Christian faith, I encourage you to stay curious. Keep asking questions. Find out for yourself whether Jesus is who he said he is. 
If we are a follower of Jesus, we may have a misunderstanding or false narrative that limits the flourishing and inner peace, the shalom that God wants for us. Let's take a look at three possible areas of misunderstanding. The first is when we don't believe in the finality of the cross. Have you ever found yourself asking for God's forgiveness over and over again for something, not quite believing that he could possibly forgive you? I have. And here's what I needed to truly believe for myself and not just for everybody else. Jesus has already forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future This is the message of the whole New Testament. John the Baptist proclaims, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Christ dies on the cross, he refers back to this and he says, it is finished. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we really believe this, then we can stop stressing about staying right with God because we know where we stand with him and can trust him with every part of our lives. We are free to live in his love and love him in return. This is shalom. So you might at this point be asking yourself, what's the point of confession then? Well, confession is for healing rather than forgiveness. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. In confession to God and to others, we bring our sins into the light and can work out what triggered us to sin and allow God to heal us. We simply cannot be set free from what we don't acknowledge. The second area is when we have a narrow idea of what it means to be a Christian. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, they're such a good Christian? What does that even mean? Do you say the right words? Do you wear the right clothes? Do you read the Bible every day and are comfortable praying out loud? You stand up here and talk to a bunch of people? The Bible is very clear that being a Christian is all about being apprenticed to Jesus' way of life. And living with the Spirit of God transforming us so that we can become more and more the unique person God created us to be. I cannot flourish if I try to be someone I'm not. Someone I think I should be or that other people want me to be rather than the person God has made me to be. It starts with being honest with myself about who I am and how God has wired me. 
Jesus used the picture of a river to help us understand what it means to live as a Christian. It would have been a really powerful image for his original audience. Israel was a desert. If a river flows, life flourishes. If a river dies, life dies. This is why Jesus said, whoever is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within them. Jesus' spirit doesn't just flow in us. He always wants to flow through us so that others flourish too. Bit of a pointer to next week's talk on reconciliation with others. As a follower of Jesus, the Bible tells me that I am a new creation. And it's both an event and a process. It takes freedom and exploration to learn how God wants us to grow and to contribute to his work in the world and the expansion of his kingdom. I don't believe that there's any such thing as a good Christian. But I do think we can ask ourselves questions that force us to take an honest look at ourselves and whether we're becoming more like Jesus. Am I growing more easily irritated these days or is love growing in me? Am I growing more easily discouraged these days or is peace growing in me? Love and peace, two of the fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps another question to ask is, am I swimming in the river of the Holy Spirit or am I standing on the bank feeling like something is missing? The third area that might hinder our flourishing is when we believe that we are defined by what has happened to us. The author James Bryan Smith writes, you were uniquely incarnated into a specific family, culture, and time. God planned it for you. You cannot change this. It has a large influence on you, but it does not define or limit you. It has not only happened to you, it has happened for you. What has happened to us matters, but it need not define us. In my work supporting parents and caregivers of youth and kids with mental health and substance use challenges, we sometimes talk about the need for radical acceptance. By this, we mean fully accepting things as they are, instead of ignoring, avoiding, or wishing the situation were different. As a follower of Jesus, this need for radical acceptance is coupled with God's promise that in all things, he works for good for those who love him. If we can radically accept that we don't have control of the universe, and trust that our Father in heaven does and wants only good things for us, 
then we can find peace in the present. God says to us in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. God knows the whole story and healing happens when we allow him to restore us. We might say restory us and write us into his larger, more beautiful story. One where he is reconciling all things, restoring the whole of creation. My husband reminded me recently of a comment that my mum made about my father-in-law as pancreatic cancer ravaged his body. She simply said, he radiates peace. My husband's father was a wonderful example of radical acceptance and trust in God's goodness and his bigger story. And other people noticed. I encourage you to take some time this next week to think about what might be hindering your shalom. Perhaps some of the things I've said resonate with you, or perhaps it's something different. So if it serves us well to be aware of what might be hindering our shalom, what practices might cultivate shalom? You probably expect me to say prayer. Am I still sort of kicking at you? Is it okay? You probably expect me to say prayer and reading the Bible. And yes, I do think these are the primary ways that we jump into the river of God's spirit. Not to fulfill a spiritual duty or simply to gain more knowledge, but to listen to God and be real with him. When we try and squash our emotions, our fears, and our questions, rather than allow the Holy Spirit to work with us in and through them, we are likely to squash our growth towards becoming the person God created us to be. If you're not sure about this, have a read through the Gospels and see how Jesus the perfect example of humanity that we are meant to embody as we go through this life, see how Jesus was honest about his own fears, emotions, and questions. There's three other practices aside of the prayer and Bible reading bit that I'd like to touch on as important for our shalom. The first is gratitude. In the New Testament, we're encouraged to be thankful in all circumstances. And please note that God does not say be thankful for all circumstances. Gratitude is an attitude of mind that enables us to recognize what is good in our lives. Something in me shifts when amongst all that might seem broken and wrong, I choose to notice what is still good. When I am grateful and I let others, both God and people, know that I'm thankful for them. Perhaps it's an awareness of something that's been good that day as you settle down to sleep. 
Perhaps it's noticing someone's strengths and thanking them for what they're doing, even though your relationship with them is strained. Perhaps it's a note to a coworker or a neighbor. What might gratitude look like for you? The second practice is stillness. In his book, A Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster explains how the church fathers often spoke of otium sanctum, holy leisure. This refers to a sense of balance in life, an ability to be at peace through the activities of the day, an ability to rest and take time to enjoy beauty, an ability to pace ourselves. Foster writes, with our tendency to define people in terms of what they produce, we would do well to cultivate holy leisure with a determination that is ruthless to our calendars. I enjoy going for a walk and listening to a podcast. It taps into my need for learning and exercise all in one go, you know. We're on to a win here. Recently, I've often had the strong urge to pocket my earbuds and pay attention as I walk, to enjoy the silence and notice creation, to be aware that God is with me, to simply slow down, not see the walk as a workout, to let go of the need to accomplish something and to just be. I don't always find this easy. If I'm really honest, I often find it really difficult. How easy or difficult is it for you to be still and simply be? To leave the phone alone, to turn off the music, to be comfortable in your own skin, to hear God whispering to us, all the things that our soul needs to hear. Being still is hard for many of us. And when we're hurting, it can be especially difficult. And this leads me to the final practice that I'd like to th us to think about. This practice is sharing our story. In order to allow God to bring about the inner healing that is so important to reconciling with ourselves, we have to stop hiding our story. In my job, healing happens as a parent shares their story of how they're struggling and when they're honest about their perceived failures. Shame and guilt grow in the darkness of secrecy, but they die in the light of trusted relationships. It takes courage to share our story. But letting others into our pain often helps us process it. Do you need to find a trusted person with whom to share your story? Perhaps it's a counselor, a friend, one of the pastors here at church. I encourage you to take this step if you need to. Jesus came to set us free free, 
And oftentimes, he uses the skills and the gifts of others to help move us towards greater shalom. All three of these practices can seem unnatural when life is hard. Gratitude, really? Holy leisure, have you seen my life? Share my story? You've got to be kidding me. I get it. I wonder, however, if the power of these practices actually increases when life is tough. I think they can expand our perspective and reconnect us to our identity as God's beloved, filled with his spirit and part of his bigger story. Wherever you're at, I encourage you to do as you can, not as you can't. Small steps, remembering that God is with you in this. So, let's summarize. God's desire is for all people everywhere to flourish, to be made whole, and to experience the deep peace that the Bible calls shalom. This inner peace comes from a secure identity as God's masterpiece, uniquely and wonderfully made, forgiven and made new in Christ, and living in the flow of his spirit as we fulfill his purpose for our lives. Our identity is received, not achieved. We can have false narratives that limit our shalom, and there are practices that we can engage in that can enable our shalom, our flourishing. So we're going to finish in a minute, but I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And while they do that, I'll just keep talking. At the end of a church service, we often use the blessing found in numbers that the high priest would read over the Israelites. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Here's what I want us to take notice of. Because of Jesus, every word of this blessing is true for all who belong to him. Jesus has turned what was a petition, an ask, into a proclamation. The Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord is smiling at you. The Lord is turned toward you and he is giving you his peace. Picture for a moment how a person's face lights up with delight as they catch sight of someone they love. Looking at my husband now. <laughs> this is how God sees you. He is smiling at you, his face lighting up at the thought of you. He is turned toward you and he wants to work in you and with you so that you know his healing and his peace. And he promises that one day we will be fully reconciled with ourselves. 
We will be made completely whole. Shalom will be fully established. So I invite you to be quiet just for a moment and sit with God in the stillness and listen to what he might be saying to your soul today. <laughs> 